Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is Juliette Kayem, CNN national security analyst, Harvard Kennedy School professor, columnist for The Atlantic, and expert in the field of emergency preparedness, consequence management, and risk reduction. As it happens, Juliet and I spoke on the day that the CDC lifted its mask mandate for vaccinated people, both outdoors and indoors. For this reason, Juliet was both limited in her time, but also quite focused on the subject at hand, risk reduction and COVID-19. As a former Department of Homeland Security official under President Obama, Juliet has been applying the lessons of counterterrorism and advising mayors, governors, and private sector leaders on their responses to the pandemic and proven strategies to increase the numbers of vaccinations across the country. Juliet also describes growing up in Los Angeles and the many great teachers who influenced her at Westlake School for Girls. After attending Harvard College and Harvard Law School, Juliet pursued civil rights law, eventually landing in the area of counterterrorism prior to 9-11, after which her career evolved from law to public service to academia to journalism to now all of the above. Juliette Kayem on the women's recession, risk mitigation, and a hopeful path forward from COVID-19. This is The Supporting Cast. Supporting cast. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So my first question this season has always been about how folks are doing personally. For the past year, it's obviously been very unique for all of us. You've been yeah. commenting on a lot of it uh, in your role as a national security analyst at CNN. But first, before getting to your professional work, how are you and your kids and your husband oh, doing personally? That is like the best question. That may be one that actually brings me to tears. And, and like, you know, it's so funny because you're not, you don't expect to answer a question like that. So what we're talking, Eli, two hours after the CDC and President Biden, it, you know, it's a new day with the, with the dropping of the mask requirements. And we'll figure out the yeah. details of it. It's still a little bit complicated. And I'm going to ask you about that for sure. Yeah, I think <laughs> the details are still to be worked out. But nonetheless, it's a, it feels we're on the other side, that we've turned a corner. So I'm definitely very happy and, and excited about that. But, you know, for someone like me, where it's not only the CNN and the Atlantic, it's also advising mayors and governors and private sector and stuff. Right. 2020 was like no year because in some ways I didn't really have a capacity to think much. I mean, you just felt like for someone like me, I was in triage because I was working from six in the morning to 10 at night and the kids were home. My daughter left college for the year. So she mm. decided she didn't want to go back after she had come back in March. So she was home for parts of it. So, you know, I had three kids at home, all of them remote. You know, if you could just sort of make it through and give yourself a break, that was a good day. I, on a personal level, just exercised a lot. I mean, that was, I think the only thing mentally mm that I thought that that could help. And now sort of reemerging. Yeah, your re-entry. 
I don't quite know. I mean, honestly, there are yeah. things I don't miss. I mean, I don't miss the hecticness. I don't miss the travel that much. There's some travel I miss, but I'm not keen. I haven't gotten on a flight. I'm not like eager to get on a flight. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, people aren't asking. Like there's no, I think if you didn't change because of it, that would be weird. But so I'd like to say I'm, I'm blessed. No, no major tragedies in my life disruptions, inconveniences, but, um, but thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's important to check in, you know, but you have been pretty busy professionally. And I know in addition to, to CNN and writing for the Atlantic, you've been advising mayors and governors and private sector leaders on COVID-19 response and vaccinations. And I guess before getting to vaccinations and what's going on currently in today's news, what has been your advice over the past year? I mean, I'm sure it's been varied, but what have you seen work well? Yeah. What have you seen not work well? And what have you encouraged these leaders to do? So a couple things. I mean, one is numbers and hope that like leaders and mayors and governors need to be honest with the numbers, hmm. but also need to give a path forward so that people had something to look forward to, especially in those darkest of days, that, that what was being done to protect them. I think a lot of what I called the battle rhythm, that Mm. what was very important for mayors and governors and CEOs is to create a battle rhythm for their community so that people, so like that, you know, that people feel fear where there's silence, so that there was just a sense of community engagement and things like that. And then now on this side, I spent a lot of time on reopening. I spent, you know, I spent, I advised on reopening and, you know, listen to people. People have changed. People are traumatized. Kids are still not fully back in school. Listen to what they want, because there might be a competitive advantage for Mm. doing better and being better in terms of talent acquisition, in terms of geography. And then, of course, I'd be remiss in not saying it, given I'm a Westlake alumni, the impact that this had on women. I mean, and it's not just, I mean, it's across the board. And it's women leaving the workforce. Uh, women leave. Is that a big part of it? I put that in quotes. So women were mostly impact. Were you know we call this a woman's recession because women's traditional jobs or you know it was consumer retail, not traditional, but a lot of women are in consumer retail, transportation, travel, all that stuff. So that's the first thing. But then there's you know another piece to it, which is because of schools, women who left the workforce because they just simply could not sustain having kids at home and trying to work. Uh, And so you saw something like an 11 to 12% leaving the workforce. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's challenging. And now today we should say there's some major news that came out of the CDC and it's about lifting mask requirements for those who are vaccinated, even indoors. You wrote recently in the Atlantic about government guidelines being continually updated when it's necessary. And you said, I want to quote you here, instead of imposing requirements that restrict everyone's activities equally, governments and private entities should rely on drawing sharper distinctions between unburdened and burdened classes. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I mean, um, instead of dealing in a world of punishment, and it will be interesting to see this, how we should view the world is the United States is like one big TSA line, which is, or one big airport line. And people know pre-clear. So, you know, TSA pre-clear or pre-check, which is I give you 
or I take a vaccine, I give you information, and therefore I get what what we call in the TSA world unburdened. I get, in other words, I can go through security quickly. And that's how to think about a vaccine that you're sort of being unburdened. The, Hmm. The other side of it is the burden side, which is those who are not vaccinated. And one of the ways, once you ensure access, I don't want to minimize access as an issue, especially in particular for minority and other communities, but this is access to vaccination, access to vaccination. So, you know, we tend to, we throw a lot of things into the vaccine hesitancy bucket. And what we're covering by the polling is that that's actually not true, that vaccine Mm -hmm. hesitancy is a lot more complicated. And a lot of it does have to do with access, uh, Hmm. access to the vaccine. So you, you try to get the burdened people, the people who are in the long line at the airport, yeah. To look over at the unburdened people and go, that's fabulous. That's a great place <laughs> to be. And I think you're seeing a little bit of that with the CDC guidance. I mean, the CDC guidance, the first bullet, you know, all the hoopla, everything's fabulous. But the first bullet is private sector and state and locals are going to make determinations on their own. And so I think what you're going to see is a lot of the pressure on the private sector, not in a bad way, but to begin to set some rules. So think of a school like Westlake. Vaccines are now... Uh, right. open to 12 right. and older. Right. So that's po- yeah. that's probably most of your student body. Yeah. So yep. you could have a vaccine requirement. And will they? And won't that require something like a vaccine authentication? Yes. And we're not talking about that, but that's okay. We don't need to call it that because it's so loaded. But it's just basically, uh, so think about- Passport or right, whatever. Think about right? the cruise line, right? Yeah. So they want to draw more people into- coming onto cruises. Are you more or less likely to do that if everyone's vaccinated? You're more likely to do that because if everyone's vaccinated. So the the cruise ships are probably going to have vaccinated only, right? Broadway Hmm. will have vaccinated only. And so a lot of this enforcement will be in the private sector. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And that way it's, so it's not just the masking, it's everything, right? It's just every piece of it. Then you begin to uh, sort of push people into the unburdened line. And that's how I would envision the world now. That's how I'm getting, trying to get sure. people to envision the world rather than heard, like, which is like not a helpful thing. But won't something like that, or couldn't something like that be politicized just like everything else where certain mayors or governors yeah. will create a burdened and unburdened system and some won't. And the ones that don't will beat their chest and say, we're not a, a state, we're not a county that separates yeah. People based on something like this. Right. Right. I, I think that's right. So, for example, the masking rules are still applying on airplanes and airports and the cruise lines if they go that way. So just thinking yeah. about ways in which you can move people towards the unburdened line. That's the way I think about it. And yeah. there might be discrepancies across states and localities, but that's OK. So are you hopeful? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, all the data. I mean, for the U.S., all the data is remarkable. And in fact, that piece that you just cited, which came out, I think, two weeks ago now. Correct. Yep. Was a little bit like all you doctors and public health people, you're not thinking in terms of risk reduction. You're thinking in terms right. of risk elimination. And we're just not at that stage anymore. We have to really think about what what will reduce the risk. And that's important. Yeah. And you're speaking as someone who was a member of the Department of Homeland Security and the Obama administration. 
Is that something you thought about yeah, a lot about, we don't in that role? About risk elimination, we think about risk reduction all the time. Yeah. In a world like ours, you are not going to get the risk to zero. So I do Twitter a lot. So I'm looking at Twitter about the CDC guidelines, and it's all. Yeah. But what about this? And what about that? Look, they made a calculation about risk reduction and common sense. And they aligned around the ending of the mask mandate. Is it perfect? No. Are, are more people going to get sick than if you forced everyone to stay inside? Yes. But that's not an option, right? And couldn't they have taken that approach earlier? I mean, is there an argument yeah. that because the risk to older people was so much greater than younger people, was there an opportunity early on that older people were more burdened, and younger people were more unburdened in some way, or is that too simple to think about? It was too across the board. And I think there's a lot of lessons to learn. I think yeah. someone like me, I mean, I looked at my first couple columns and stuff like that in, in the Atlantic. I mean, I think the fact that I didn't even mention the economic impact, like we sort of bifurcated, well, follow the health, but, but economic schools, all that stuff, that that is public health. And so could there have been better ways to stay open or to be closed or whatever? Who knows, right? But just thinking about it that way. But now I want to talk a bit about your background because you are a graduate of Westlake School. You've referenced it several times. You grew up in Los Angeles. Yeah. And tell me about your parents. What were your oh, parents' profession? They're so great. Mom was a stay-at-home mom. And I had an older brother and sister. Brother went to Harvard, John. Uh, sister went to Westlake. She's three years older than me, Marisa. Uh, we lived in Westwood. Uh, my dad mm-hmm. was did various things. I mean, he's a lawyer by training, but he did real estate and international, all sorts of other different transactions. And then he would later get in more into science and, and other issues. So he's been really successful. He's had an interesting career. And then, yeah, grew up, went to Warner Avenue and then went to, to Westlake, now Harvard Westlake. I was very different then. And I was there yeah. from sixth to 12th grade. So I was there the whole time that it opened. Sorry, everyone, I, things are beeping. So um, <laughs> I, it's one of those days. So yeah, so that was it. And I was interested in, I mean, I did debate, I did volleyball, I engaged student and stuff. But was probably more interested in law. I'm a lawyer by training, by the way. But mm-hmm. uh, but more interested in law and litigation and civil rights stuff hmm. than where my path would take me. And were there teachers there oh. that inspired you, either in that area or others? Well, I think just the ones that are memorable because they were so engaging and they're part of your life. I mean, that was I don't know what it's like now, but Westlake was pretty intimate. It was very small. I mean, how big was my class? 60 girls. Yeah, it's so cool. yeah, we still call ourselves Westlake girls. It's hilarious. We're in our 50s now. Um, you know, there were the Warners, of course, uh, Walt and Francine. Yeah, Walt and Francine. There's Joni Parker, uh, who for for women's studies, who was just amazing and such a character, but also such a joy to be around Lenny Wildflower, who taught health hmm. and health issues. And then King Schofield, who was debating hmm. in volleyball, which I was involved with both and who was a, a good friend. I still keep in touch with him. I've seen the Warners relatively recently. Lenny and I sometimes still email and stuff. I mean, one of the nice things about being on TV or doing being so you know, it's actually people, it's people that you wish you hadn't lost come back into your life. Yeah. And so it was just, it was fantastic. I think Look, I mean, I have had three kids now go through middle school. Middle school sucks. Sorry, can I say that? Yeah. It's just, someone said to me, well, I was like, I've gone through three kids now. They all have three different personalities. And I can say with complete confidence, it's just the hardest year. So I I don't know if joy is middle school. Yeah. I don't know if joy is the right word, but definitely by the time I graduated from high school, it was a great experience. And 
can I say this? So like all girls' schools are intense. And this was the eighties, mm-hmm. which was lots of big money, lots of, there's like a lots of drama for not, you know, all girls' schools. And when you think about that time in your lives and what I love about getting older, it's like, everyone's calmed down. Like, it's like, so nice. It's like, I'm, I'm friends with yesterday. I was telling you this yesterday, like my closest friend in life is a Westlake alumna, Amy Wallman, who was a New York Times reporter, is now a novelist and writer. She was just over yesterday because she, her mother-in-law lives here. And so I haven't been able to see her or we've seen each other only outside, but it was, we got to hug, which is just so weird. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it was such a great experience, but I left and never came back. I mean, I'm, I have not lived in LA since for even a summer. Because you've been in Boston the majority of the time. I've been in Boston the majority of the time and then summer. So I came to Harvard undergrad. I think summers I did. I was, yeah, I'm just thinking about it. I either stayed here or went down to D.C. I then took time off between Harvard and Harvard Law, which I would eventually graduate from. And I lived in South Africa. So maybe I had like some stints in L.A. and I was doing writing. I mean, my alternative life and obviously a huge part of my life now is communication and media and, and writing. Yeah. My alternative career might have been as a journalist, but I just uh, went to law school. I practiced for five years. I was a litigating attorney. People always be like to me, like, should I go to law school? I was like, well, you want to be a lawyer because that's yeah. and I wanted to be a lawyer. And my, my transition into national security stuff really came as sort of a byproduct of the civil rights stuff, that there were so many civil rights implications to our counterterrorism efforts. And I'll remind listeners. This was 1998 and 1999, so pre-9-11. Mm. So when mm. 9-11 happened, people like mine's life changed dramatically because we were in this weird, discrete field of counterterrorism. And then all of a sudden, and now I descri- I don't describe my life as being in counterterrorism now. It really is in preparedness and consequence management. So whether it's COVID or I'm going on again on air tonight on the pipeline, uh, on the on the colonial pipeline. So, And when you say where civil rights meets counterterrorism. Yeah. Do you mean things like terrorism and torture? Do you mean things like racial profiling? Yes, surveillance and racial profiling. So I got hmm. involved with the counterterrorism cases. And once again, this is like quaint world, right? This is like 1998, like maybe there were 12 cases, right? And you compare to, and this was all foreign terrorism, not the kind of threat that we face today. So there were just growing concerns about surveillance, about classified information, so that the attorney general at the time asked me to help with a review. So as a civil rights attorney, I get into the national security world. And then that's when you know, hmm. one could define me as more national security, even though I, my background was civil rights. And then ended up up here. And people always say to me like, oh, your career was like, my career only makes sense because I get to write the bio, right? I mean, in other words, why am I here in Massachusetts? Fundamentally and not complaining is because of my husband who got a teaching job here. I would have stayed in DC and you, but he got a teaching job at Harvard Law School. So then I came here. Well, that ended up being the best. I thought it was a non-choice, but looking back, it was fantastic because I've had a really great career without having to be in the scrum of DC all the time mm. and wonderful opportunities here. So yeah, that's I, I say about my career or my professional life is I've had one career in many jobs and that's just true. And I still do. I mean, I still, I do the consulting and the writing and I'm a professor at the Kennedy school and do a variety of other things and worked in the public sector and the private sector, but they have all the sort of same, you know, they're all around sort of risk reduction and preparedness. And that's, that's, yeah. that's one way to structure your career. And, it, you know, there's moments of panic or moments of 
I mean, you have to keep feeding the beast. On the other hand, uh, I did have three kids and I was able, besides travel, I yeah. was able to be around a little bit more. And I like not being so tied to an institution, right? I, I sort of like having a whole, I like day, yeah. being different. Well, one instance I want to talk about of when you probably had to be focused <laughs> is when you were in the Department of Homeland Security in the spring of 2010. Yes, yes. The Deepwater Horizon yeah. spill, which is the largest marine oil spill in the history of the petroleum right. industry. Where were you at that time? What were you tasked with right. when that occurred? So I was Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs. Well, that's a fancy way of saying I was Assistant Secretary for Outreach to the Homeland. So I'm working with state and locals all the time. And I really liked, I wanted that job because it was an operational job. I didn't want to do a full policy job. It was an operational job. Hmm. And also I'd been a state Homeland Security advisor. So I really love state and local work. And I urge people who think about going into government to also think about you know, local work, state work, whatever. So yeah. I was tasked to be the sort of civilian deputy. So in other words, there's a head who's the Coast Guard, and then there was a deputy who was his Coast Guard, and then there was me who's the civilian, who's the one who gets beat up on because they don't beat up on the Coast Guard. Yeah. around what was called the National Incident Command or what's called the SANS is a spill of national significance, which was uh, declared by the president. And when the president declares that, it sets up a sort of structure of which I then was brought into. Hmm. And my job was to manage a lot of the intergovernmental, right? So the state and locals and tribal issues that were coming up and then the interagency stuff, because there was a whole scrum around the interagency. So it was really crazy, but exciting and interesting and challenging. And I learned a lot about myself and I'd love to do public service maybe one more time. It doesn't work now because everyone's home, but like, cause we live in Boston, I would love to do one more stint of it at some stage in my career because it is very meaningful. I mean, it is, you know, if you hmm. can help fix something, you know, um, and so I've been able to do that with COVID, obviously, given the work I've been doing. It's just, it's very meaningful. I mean, I love my private sector yeah. work as well. And what was meaningful about that in particular? Did you get to know some of the people who were affected? And You could see the before and after, right? People, as I, I always yeah. go back to the numbers and hope, you know, that you're honest and that you're also, I learned to listen better. I have a reputation for being relatively calm or like, you know, the, the, the Harvard Business Review or something just said the queen of calm. Like even when I'm on TV, hmm. I'm like not, not going to lose my head and stuff. Not rattled. Not rattled. But I think part of that is a friend of mine once said that there's wisdom in the noise. That in other words, like instead of getting your back up, because I mean, this is disaster management. People are going to hate you like because it's a disaster. But instead of getting yeah. your back up, listen. And sometimes you actually can learn. Hmm. So it was really it was really a memorable experience. Is that a good advice for schools or school leaders during yes. this time? I, I mean, there are schools are dealing with the challenge of getting faculty to teach in this yes. unusual manner the last few years parents who disagree with some of the policy that we're putting yeah. into place, disagree with some of the work we're doing around diversity, equity, and inclusion yeah. as well, which is out there. What's your advice to schools? So I think about this all the time. So one is yeah. there is wisdom in the noise, but define the noise. I mean, in other words, because this happens in disaster management. So here's my advice is in disaster management, we talk about situational awareness. So how do you capture what's happening that's realistic? So the guy complaining on Twitter that the levees are broken, may or may not be correct. So the, the largest hmm. complaining teacher or parent, the one who threatens organizing, where 
you know, in the end, you might find they actually don't have broad appeal if you don't get your backup, right? In other words, if you can have a counter narrative of what in fact mm. is happening. And I think what happens in a lot of these situations is you don't have your own as a leader, your own situational awareness. So all you're doing is responding to what someone will make you think is the crowd. So, hmm. so while there's both wisdom in the noise, so you, the part of that is just don't get your backup. Also figure out uh, ways in which you're capturing sentiment. I mean, in other words, because you might be surprised, right? So there is this, such a thing as a silent majority, right? Or most people just don't right. don't have a strong opinion. Have other things to think about. Right, but they also <laughs> want leadership. Like in other words, instead of pretending like, you know, they want to hear that you hear these complaints and here's why X, Y, and Z is actually happening or here's the processes. I find 80% of conflict can have process resolutions. I mean, and I don't mean that as hmm. you can just, but just if you find a way for people to, have a seat at the table where they're listened to and get them to try to be helpful, that can be very, very important. Whereas they feel like they're being silenced or not being listened or yeah, or you're just not listening. That can be a lot more challenging. Yeah. I will say the president of Harvard West, like Rick Commons yeah. has a unique talent to listen. I yeah. think when there is criticism, he is open to it. He wants to hear it. He sits down and spends time with people who who want to communicate it and and we've learned things from it and we've adjusted because of it um, yeah yeah but there are certain things we've also stayed true to because they're true to our mission and and to keeping kids safe right that's exactly right right no that's what you i mean if that is communicated in an important way that's really that's fantastic right i mean in other words that's the communication goes really far and so before we get to some get to know you questions those who are vaccine hesitant or don't have access to vaccines. Yeah. You mentioned kind of a burdened and an unburdened class yeah. and trying to coax people toward getting vaccinated for that reason. What are other strategies that you're recommending to, to leaders? Basically, we hit the vaccine wall in terms of vaccinations. In other words, the willing were got it. And now yeah. a couple of things. So, so one is uh, we do know what messaging is working. People don't often know it's free. So if you say it's free, ah. that actually, I know that actually changes a huge that makes majority sense. of people. Oh, I don't have insurance. I can't afford exactly, that. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And so that's one thing. The, uh, the other is if it's nearby. So though you can get very far on vaccine hesitancy on those two things. So that means just a much more tactical approach to vaccine distribution. I'm not opposed to lottery systems. I'm not opposed to the million dollars that the Ohio governor is going to do. I, right. I'm totally fine with that. So just to explain, that's if you get your vaccine, you're entered into a lottery to win a million dollars. Is yeah, that right? Exactly. That's exactly right. So I, I mean, I think it's just, you know, I, and I think people have different motivations. You can't blame them for their motivations. So so work with their motivations, get them to the right place to employ multiple strategies. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. One other question around risk that I'm curious about since my wife got the Johnson and Johnson okay. vaccine and she's also about seven and a half months pregnant. Oh, wow. So when the announcement came about blood clots and things, we were concerned, but we were also looking at the numbers and going hmm, one in a million. Right. And so I'm curious how you feel about the decision to halt production or to halt vaccination of J&J because there were arguments at the time that there's actually more risk in dissuading people from getting it yeah. than there was in people actually getting it in terms of the blood clots. Right. 
So I, I think it was a, I think it was an erroneous decision. I think mm. uh, just given the numbers that we had seen, I thought that I mean, once again, you're doing a risk calculation. Can you get the risk to zero? No. But I just didn't seem just given the number of cases that they were talking about. And the true vaccination plummet that we saw after that, you just can't deny that it had an impact on our vaccination rates and God knows the long-term impacts. I thought that it was a, once again, you, you're not trying to get to zero, you're just trying to minimize the risk. And if you're weighing the two things, that's very hard to do in that sense. You mean, in other words, it's hard to justify, I guess I would say, ending an entire system based on the clots, I, I think. Now, most right. doctors probably disagree with me, but that's because you know, I come from this from the risk reduction stage, not the risk elimination. Well, before we go, I have a few kind of get to know you questions yeah, and course. they relate to Los Angeles where you grew up, even though you haven't lived here in a very long time. I know. Um, we are known for our movies, our food and our climate. So my first question yeah. is, what is Juliette Kayyem's favorite movie? Oh, favorite movie. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'll tell you why. I mean, it's Jaws because wow. it holds up. I mean, there's like rom-coms that I enjoy watching more and big ones, you know, all the president's men, all of them are great. But Jaws is like, Jaws is such a gem still. Cause like almost every issue in crisis management and risk reduction, I assign it for my class. It's so fantastic. Interesting. Two guests ago, I interviewed DB Weiss who co-created yeah. uh, Game of Thrones. His favorite film also is Jaws. What? That's right. <laughs> Can you tell him that? I will. Love, I mean, I love him. On that note, have you seen the Mark Wahlberg movie about Deepwater Horizon? Horrible. Because, the, the, I mean, and it's, like, it's like oil, flesh, and fire, right? Like, I mean, it's like those are like the three things. And also the most interesting part of the spill is what happens after the fire, mm. right? Which is when the oil comes. So, yes, it was, I did not like it. Mm. Sorry. Okay, now, did you interview Mark Wahlberg? I hope I, I did not. Right. Okay, good. <laughs> Second. What's your favorite meal? I was going to say in Los Angeles, but if you haven't been there in a while, if there's no, something no, you no, love no, in Boston no, or something you make no. at home. Do you know what I miss? What do you miss? Good Mexican food general. Whatever they say about a good- Amen. Oh, right, because you were in Boston. I'm sure the chain is still there. La Salsa? Sure, there's La Salsa. So there's no, yeah. I've never expanded nationally. I still think La Salsa is, a, I'm sure there's a million better places, but whenever I am in LA, it's it's Mexican food. There's just no other place. Got it. In other words, it's sort of a waste of time to go to LA and not have Mexican food if you don't live there, because it's so, it is honestly so much better than everyone else's. Third, what's your favorite place in LA? Do you think back to your time as a Westlake student? Was there a place on the Westlake campus or a place no, in I think Westwood? No, I think, um, I mean, I think the thing I miss most, which is an LA thing, is the beach that, and mm. my husband notes it too after all these years. You know, he, he always jokes like, because we get a beach house for the summer and he just, you know, my mood, everything. He's like, get this woman a beach. I think just the beach culture, even though we lived in Westwood, but it wasn't far, but not too far, not yeah. too far. But you know, this was the, as I said, this was the eighties. All these kids are doing such serious things during the summer. I mean, all my girlfriends from Westlake will remember we were, we were literally dropped off by our mothers or we took the bus to mm -hmm. Malibu and we would be there all day. And then you would, you know, there was a pay phone and you would call for a ride or you take the bus back down Wilshire. I mean, like literally that was our summer. And this is why, you know, it's probably good to have been raised that way in, in more intense communities like the Harvard community. Cause you're yeah. like, you know, the kids are going to be fine. I used to come home from Westlake and people are going to laugh. And, uh, I used to tape 
every day, all my children in general hospital. And I would do my homework in front of all my children in general hospital, like the retake of them. That was, you know, it's just like all the rules now, they don't make much sense. We did fine. We were the best. No, I'm kidding. I think too many parents are tough on their kids. Um, well, that's a good segue to the last, very last question. I am the parent of a two and a half year old little girl. And I have another one on the way, as I mentioned. Congratulations. You are the parent of three kids, as three I understand. Three kids. They're now older, but three kids, yes. What is your best parenting advice? Either an original or something that's been passed along to you. So for your wife, is she working? She is. She's an attorney. Oh, so for your wife, the best advice I believe, I think I came up with this, is because I think I had a sort of, untru you know, I was working really hard and I was traveling a lot is, your kids don't have an alternative mother that they're thinking could be better, right? I mean, in other words, if you're the mother, so if you don't bake, you don't bake, right? And if you don't do X, right, you're just that, you know, and sometimes now that my kids are older, I'll joke with them and I'll be like, yeah, that, that mother that bakes cookies for you, she seems great. I can't wait to meet her, right? Like, that's me. Like, I'm like, you know, I can't wait. So that's yeah. the first other, I think it's for parents. I mean, I do have the luxury of time, but I also have the luxury of being in a field that is, very, very, you, you count your blessings in different ways, right? And so my husband says this about me, somehow, and I'm sure, like, did my profession pick me or vice versa? Somehow, I tend not to stew on decisions. And that has helped a lot mm. as, a, as a working parent. And it's helped a lot during the pandemic that you just make a decision. And if it works out great, and if it doesn't, you pivot. But, you know, the not stewing is good. <laughs> Don't stew. Don't stew. <laughs> Well, I know you can't stew for too long because you're about to go, I think, on air again for CNN. Is that right? I am. I am. I think I'm, I think I'm on both CNN and CNN International. I haven't checked my text while we were talking, but uh, yeah, all things bad, all things good, whatever. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But then, you know, there's good news now. So this is a very exciting night. It is. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for all the work you're doing and thank helping you. to keep us safe and mitigating our risk. And um, greetings from Westlake and Harvard Westlake. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thanks to everyone there. And this was great fun. It's always a pleasure to go back and see everyone. And, and we'll meet at La Salsa next time I'm there. I really Absolutely. I do, do dream of it. It's <laughs> Good luck with your baby. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Juliet. Thanks for joining the supporting cast. Mm -hmm.